0: Welcome to episode 45 of the Horsemanship Breakthroughs podcast, combining natural horsemanship and science with Andy Booth. I first found out about Andy when I enrolled in the Equisit Fast Track Summit, um, where they had interviews with lots of different trainers. And I heard an interview with Andy And I just straight away was like, wow, this guy knows what's up because I personally really love natural horsemanship and the things that I've learned from natural horsemanship. But I also am like a logical science-based person, right? So I'm always looking for like a deeper explanation or a science-based explanation as to why things work. And I'm always questioning theories or things that don't really make sense to me. So I love that Andy has kind of been on that journey and combines the two fields, which are, you know, sometimes conflicting or at war, so to speak. So it was really cool to see him marry those two worlds together, both through his interview. And then after I listened to his interview uh, at the Fast Track Summit, I also binged his YouTube videos and had a look at his Facebook and whatnot. He is based in France. So that meant that you know, a lot of his videos are in French, so I couldn't really understand them, but he does have some English content as well. And I think he has some plans to do more English content, which will be awesome too. Now, when I interviewed Andy, even though he's he lives in France and he's on the other side of the world, it was kind of like speaking to a neighbor for me because you'll hear in his accent. He's got a very country Australian accent, which is very familiar to me. And yeah, it felt like I I was literally, he was literally in the room with me. So that was cool. And I he is a great storyteller. So uh, just be aware that this is a super long episode. So you might take a few drives in the car to listen to it or yeah, I was going to put it in two parts, but I thought, nah, let's just keep it all together because you will get kind of lost in his stories, and he's got so much to share. I really liked Andy's um, confident energy and his his real uh, authenticity and honesty, even on controversial topics. So. Who is Andy? Now I pulled this information off his website, which was translated from French. So bear with me as I kind of uh, reword it into English. That kind of makes sense. So Andy says that he's always been passionate about horses, their education and their abilities. He has dedicated his life to it and he has surrounded himself with the best to support him, acquire the knowledge and experience that he has today. His mission is he dreams of changing equestrian practices towards more ethical riding for more performance, safety, and pleasure with our equine partners. His vision is ethological riding, and he believes that that should be the basis of all riding. His values are commitment, innovation, listening, happiness, love, empathy, non-judgment, and benevolence. Okay, so I really hope you enjoyed today's podcast episode interview with Andy Booth. Let's get stuck into the show. Welcome to the Horsemanship Breakthroughs podcast, a source for riding and training insights with the goal of helping your horse be a light, happy and willing partner. I'm your host, Amalia Dempsey, a mainstream equestrian rider who discovered natural horsemanship and equine learning theory. And now I help riders like you achieve connection and communication with your horse so you can have more fun and fulfillment whilst prioritizing the partnership. Get more learning resources, including my free connection and communication mini course at amaliadempsey.com. Click the follow button so you don't miss an episode. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave me a rating and review or screenshot this episode and share on social media. I hope you enjoy the show. Okay, welcome Andy Booth to the Horsemanship Breakthroughs podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time today to join me on the podcast and talk all things horsemanship. So welcome again.
1: Thank you very much, Amalia pleasure talking to you on the other side of the world which is one of the great things about this technology it means that we can have a little chat from South Australia to France.
0: Absolutely yes and um, I always like to start off with uh, a little bit about your background. So can you tell us about your horsemanship journey to date from when you got into horses and what has led to what you're doing today?
1: Yes it's a, it's been a, a long and winding road so I'll probably spare the listeners. All the details, but I grew up in uh, Western New South Wales on on a cattle place, and horses were basically the, the work tool that were being used as a, as a cattle farm. So yeah, horses were were basically the the thing we used for moving the cattle. And then on weekends we'd go off to shows. And uh, so my my parents both rode. Uh, Mum was more into dressage. Dad was into his eventing and a bit of jumping. And during the week, we'd use the same horses to move the cattle. Uh, So basically Australian stock horses, mostly mum had some nice Welsh ponies and I, I thought it was just, that's what everyone did. I didn't even, I suppose when I went to school, I realized that not everyone rode horses. Other kids had motorbikes and things, but horses were the work tool and horses were what, you know, I sort of found myself with from a very young age. I don't remember learning to ride, but as I went along with the whole thing there was showing and i had i was lucky i had really good ponies for doing all the pony events and i used to love the whole adventure of loading up the truck and heading off and having a little sleep up in the top of the the truck crate and all those sort of things the heading off to to shows all over South Wales was a great adventure I, i really enjoyed that and my brother and i were quite competitive we were at a pretty decent level as far as ponies go later i went to boarding school so that put a bit of a hold on the whole going to shows and the competitive side of horsemen of my sort of equestrian journey and after that i went off jackarooing on stations and probably one of the first big places i worked on at guna station out near tamworth and um there was a weekend and the boss i think i'd had a rugby injury or something and the boss said why don't you go into the long yard Hotel in town. There's a fella there in an America and he's doing a demonstration. His name's Pat Perelli. He's doing a demonstration on colt starting on break, a breaking in demonstration, as we called it. So I said, yeah, I'll do that. I had a free ticket or something. So I went in there and grabbed a hay bale and watched this Pat Perelli fella. And they ran up some pretty waspy horses. I, I know it was a a local trader of horses that had some pretty rank stuff. And they ran up some pretty pretty bumpy horses, and he um talked his way through it, and I don't know whether it was what he did or what he said, I th- both and it was really I was surprised I was young, like only eighteen years old, but I was surprised that I'd been in horses all my life, and there was these big, big things that I just didn't know. I didn't even know, and I'd ridden and won a lot in in, in the whole pony and the and the dressage and jumping world. we were like rather competitive. And I didn't even know that it was the release of pressure that taught the horse how to respond to the pressure. So I thought, well, how do you get, which probably sounds a little bit funny today because some of those ideas have, have moved into the culture. I'd like to think so, maybe not so much here, but at least in Australia, people mostly know these things. You know, they know the principles, the big principles of comfort and uncomfort, discomfort, and, and how to use those things. But when I was, like, this is back in about 1988 89 i didn't even know those things and i thought well that's surprising that you can be around something all your life or even if you're only 20 for that long and have ridden since i was like four or five and just not know these big things and so as he talked his way through it uh i thought wow this is opening up a whole new thing that i just know nothing about now i tried to talk to even back on the station i talked to some people about it and they said yeah yeah those americans they think they know everything and I talked to dad about it and he's yeah yeah no there's nothing new under the sun mate you know we've got if, if if there was anything new out there we'd know about it by now we've been around horses for thousands of years and at that time i know pat went up to talk to a little bit north of, of tamworth and went up and spent some time with morris wright and i that was the technique that i was using this um Defry method was the technique i was using to start horses and i know it was an interesting conversation and they were talking about take and give and i said you yeah, know it's give and take no no it's take and give and i thought wow you guys are real philosophical having this amazing chat and morris gave pat a stock whip i still remember that and i thought wow that's a nice present and it just opened a whole new thing to me and not so long afterwards pat did another thing i think it was in mount isa which is a long way from where i was uh, and i said you know i'm just going to jump in the car and drive to mount isa and, um, and watch this fella again because I think he's onto something that I know nothing about and I need to know about this because I was getting a little bit knocked about with some of my starting some young horses and on some of those stations there were some pretty good stock horses, good bloodlines, but they're pretty hot. There was a lot of thoroughbred in there and sometimes it just, you know, I'd put my foot in the stirrup and think, well, this is a bit of Russian roulette. Sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't, but I don't really know. I can't tell you yeah this will be fine uh and i don't know why i can't figure this part out or why it's still dangerous or and there's something i'm not getting and that's probably one of the biggest i suppose if i think about breakthroughs and things one of the biggest breakthroughs is realizing i'm not there's something i'm not getting i need to find it Uh, whereas i think a lot of people sort of block up instead of asking those questions or instead of asking the right questions and saying maybe i'm not maybe i'm the problem maybe there's something i haven't figured out so I was lucky enough to have figured out reasonably early and probably watching Pat start those horses and there were nice smooth demonstrations. He was able to talk to the people, especially back in the day. Probably if I watched the same thing today, I'd think, ooh, that's a bit, you know, that's a bit sweaty, that's a bit dusty, that's a bit wild. But back in those days, it was it wasn't at all anything that that I found disturbing. I thought, well, that's nice, and he's able to talk about it, he's able to do it, which was I thought was pretty classy and explained it well. And and I, I just knew there was something that I, I wasn't onto. And I, I went home, I went back to the station and grabbed a plastic bag and a piece of bamboo and said, yeah, I'll do the same thing he did. And then just got thrown uh, on this horse and, and thought, okay, well, something's gone wrong because I did exactly what he did and I fell off. And so I mustn't have done because he didn't. So then I went up to Mount Isa and watched him again. And I thought, yeah, no, there's more to this. This is not something I'm going to be able to pick up uh, either by watching him for a day or even in a two-day clinic, and that really started the whole thing. And at the same time, not far away in in, in Kurindai, there was um, lovely people out there that the uh, that were the hills, and they were bringing out Ray Hunt, and so there was the chance to go and watch Ray. And so I sat on the fence and watched that, and it was the same experience. I just said, "There's a lot of stuff I'm not, I haven't got this figured out," and horsemanship just it was like a, a revelation. I thought, wow, this is, and I still remember it. And I, you know, I, I talked to my girlfriend about it and said, isn't it, what did you get that? And she said, yeah, same thing. I, you know, I, I watched the demonstration and just thought, wow, that's, that's, I'm missing this. I need this part. And, and that was the big thing, I think for me. So I worked on more stations right up through Queensland, the Northern Territory. And I tried to apply the thing, but I, I knew that I was still missing out on it. And later, I, I thought, I've got to find a way of getting more time around this stuff. And I managed in about in the mid-90s, about 97. Funny how things happen. Uh, I my father picked up a newspaper in an aeroplane from Sydney. And he said, oh, look at that. They're giving out free. The Queen's giving out these Queen's Trust Awards, to young Australians in the city, and they can go all over. You should try that with you horse whispering stuff and you know the way he said it was pretty derogatory like yeah, yeah that 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 stuff you're into and i thought well, well i could have a crack at it i suppose and dad said yeah anyway hell, it'll only take you half an hour so do it and i filled in the piece of paper in the newspaper and sent in an application and next thing i got an interview in sydney and um yes yeah, next thing i was sitting in government house there in in sydney with the premier and the governor and all that and i'd won an award from the queen's trust and it was a decent amount of money to go and study natural horsemanship. Now I found out later that the queen, I, I knew she loved horses, but I didn't know she was following Monty Roberts and following this whole natural horsemanship thing and thinking there's something in this that's really interesting and and probably just it, everything fell into, into place. The, the universe came together and there I was, I'd won this Queen's Trust award and so I went to Pat's Ranch in Colorado and he was over the moon because it was, you know, this, this young man got sent to me by the Queen of England. <laughs> <laughs> he made a big thing about it and he dragged me all over the States and I became his Mexican, I guess. Uh, you know, he'd be doing these cold start demonstrations and someone would have to get on the horses and and I can understand it now with a bit of age. I, think I don't take the risks that I used to take. So, you know, if everything went well, that was Thanks to him, and if anything went wrong, it was because I made a mistake. And I was getting on these horses and doing these Colt start demonstrations, and it was it was an amazing adventure. Everything, you know, I thought oh, I'll just go home one day to take over the family farm. And while I was over there in the states, I thought, hang on, this is this is an incredible adventure. Uh, we went all over America and did shows. And at the end of that, Pat said, "Look, you, you can drive a truck and you're handy on the farm." And, would you like to hang around a little bit longer? And I ended up staying over there for five years. Oh, wow. And eventually I thought well, I had to do something and make some money one day because <laughs> I wasn't, it was costing the money to live there, but I thought I'd probably have to grow up someday and do something. And uh, an opportunity came up in France uh, to do something similar, to try and bring that stuff over, over to France. I took that opportunity in 2001, and so for the last, 20 years now, I've been doing that over here. Now, I took a a job on a place not far from Paris. We started up. Unfortunately, they didn't want to call it horsemanship. They called it equitation ethologique, and that's a bit of a shame because I didn't even know what that was, but that was the French Federation that decided to give it it that strange name. I didn't like it at all at the time. I'm a little bit probably, I wouldn't say happy because the name doesn't make any sense at all, But ethology is a science. And I guess because the scientific community was so against that calling it that name that I thought, well, I'll probably study science a little bit and see if I can explain horsemanship in a more scientific term. And so the first person I got onto was an Australian because I thought, that'll be easier for me. And I got onto uh, Andrew McLean and we'd already crossed paths a few times um, in a nice way. (laughs) We'd already... Run into each other. It, 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 I think it was in Equitana in Melbourne and a few other things. And he knew that I was. I started this half zebra thing in America, and that she was quite well known, and that I was starting a lot of young horses. I'd heard of him. He'd heard of me, and so we started chatting. And he sent me over his thesis, his thesis from from university, and I and it was really interesting. I thought, wow, that's. I hate that when people say to me, oh, yeah, you've put words on what I already know. And I thought, no, you don't. But anyway, I'll be nice. But I think as far as the science went, it gave a clearer explanation of what was happening than the explanations I already had. So I thought, well, lucky that the French called it ethology because otherwise I wouldn't be going towards the science. And and the science really helped. I, like, I thought, wow, that that explains a lot of things that are going on. In a less anthropomorphic way, you know, in, a, in a, a little bit more, and, and that really, I, I, I would have thought at the time, oh yeah, but it won't change anything. It's good to understand, but it doesn't change what I do. I still just do horsemanship, but I've studied the science. It won't change anything. And a, a few years ago, it was really hot. We had this big heat wave, and I pulled out some old cassettes from video cassettes. I still had a cassette video recorder, and I put them in. I said, oh look, I'll show you some young horses that I started. Uh, Back in the '90s, and as I watched it, I thought, "Wow, I'm really missing some stuff here," back then. And it became clear to me as I was watching those videos that the science had really helped. That understanding, the more the the better we know the subject, the better we do the subject. And I thought, I'm glad I, I ran into that science because I think it. I was a little bit lost in the whole leadership issue of, okay, I've got to be the boss, and he's got to be respectful, so I'll make him respect me. And I. I was a little bit off center there and I think the science helped me with that. And as I was watching those videos, I thought, wow, I have changed, which was quite interesting. And so I've put the two together and started up something that's called horseman science. And it's basically horsemanship with a more scientific explanation of what's actually happening. And I worked there out of Paris for about 10 or 12 years and then eventually moved down towards Bordeaux in France and bought my own place. And I've been teaching clinics, and I've started up an online thing, and it's fun. I, I just, it's um, something I it would have been just a dream like ten back when I was into horsemanship, or well, back when I was studying patent all that. It was just a dream. Say, if you could do whatever you wanted, what would you do? And I said, Well, if I could do whatever I wanted, I'd be paid for working my own horses. Yeah.
2: <laughs> you know, yeah. You,
1: you, you can't have that. <laughs> and then this online thing came up, and I thought you can you can you can just train your own horses you get in front of a camera you explain what you're doing and you put it on and there you go now you're getting paid for training working your own horses i thought well isn't that the greatest thing that ever happened so um yeah that's that's basically the journey and i still fascinated by all aspects of it i work a lot with sport horses over here i've had some really great adventures. Uh, They started pretty early when I moved over here in 2004. There was a dressage horse that was terribly tight, scared and unpredictable as far as his tests would go. A lot of mistakes and spookies and things like that. So I worked with that horse. The Federation, the French Federation said, oh, well, we'll get this horse whisperer kid to have a go at this and see if he can do anything. And next thing, the horse really improved a lot qualified for the olympic games went to athens and wow and um i think just just outside of the final we was it was 16th So uh, you know the top there's 50 that go in there's 20 there's there's uh, 25 that go into the the grand prix special and then there's 15 that go into the music at the end and i think the horse was 16th but the going to the big events in germany and and working with that horse and following that along it was terrific at the same time it was about then that i realized that you people are the terrific technicians the, the, the european riders you're wonderful technicians you've got terrific equitation technique
2: mm-hmm.
1: but you're really not horsemen and that's pretty hard to say over here they don't like it when i say that but there's a lot of horsemanship that's missing. They're terrific technicians. They're incredible pilots. Some of the show jumpers I work with, you put them on horses. By gee, I wouldn't like to try and steer them around, but they they're out there jumping 160 on these on these horses that are basically out of control. But they're really good pilots. But they're just not really good horsemen. And I know when I started teaching some professional clinics over here, one of the first questions I said was, okay you're all professionals. You tell me, how does a horse learn to stop? And I said, oh, well, you yeah, know, you pull on two reins. And I said, you're right. Eh? Oh, well, you know, I block my back and I block my seat and then I pull on the two reins. Yeah. No, I, I do this and I do that. And I said, you're all giving me techniques. I want to know how does a horse learn that when this happens, I need to stop my feet. And it was a, probably like my thing in the eighties when I first saw Pirelli, I thought, they looking at me like, what are you on about? And I, said, and I, I had to get diplomas and things over here. And as I studied my diplomas, like I had to do my French equitation diploma to be able to teach, to be allowed to teach. It's it's the rules over here. Mm-hmm. So as I studied my equitation diploma and I passed all my different levels and things like that, as I was studying the books and getting the lessons, I realised that you know how to ride horses, but you don't know how horses learn. and um And that was a big thing to me. I thought there's an enormous place for me over here. Now, the fact that they might need the information and do they want the information, that's two different things. But there's enormous need for for horsemanship over here, especially in the sports world, because I think they're missing out on some of the best horses. I think the best horses ask the best questions. And because the people aren't coming up with the right answers, they're missing out on some of the great horses. Some of the great horses are ending up you know getting thrown off to the side because they're not understanding how to how to educate those horses correctly and probably in the last few years I've almost separated in at least in my head equitation and education I said you're really good at equitation but you're just not educating them and that's the that's sort of where I'm up to now is the clinics and then doing more and more online stuff because I really and, and, and need I think there's, there's two things that are going a little bit wrong. They're breeding some wonderful horses over here in France, the terrific sport horses, especially in the show jumping in the eventing world. but I think that they're, they're missing out on getting a good foundation on those horses and getting the horses well educated, basically because the people aren't educated enough to educate the horses. Now how can I bring that to them in a dip- diplomatic way without offending anyone? That's another story but
0: yeah, yeah, I get what you're saying though. And I I definitely can relate because I've kind of been that rider who felt like she was a pretty good pilot. But when it came to any sort of groundwork or um like helping a horse through a problem, say trailer loading or something like that, I really didn't have the skills. And in fact, if the horse was kind of a little bit unruly, so to speak, I'd just say, oh, just get me on, I'll be fine. Which I would not do now. I've got a lot more skills on the on the ground now, but going back to you spoke about uh, where you were teaching some riders and you were asking them about how the horse stops. Can you tell us what sort of answer you were looking for? Like, were you looking for them to talk about operant conditioning or pressure release, negative reinforcement? Like, what sort of answer would you have wanted them to say ideally?
1: I suppose something to do with those aspects of learning theory would have been good. Just understanding, and even without going into the science of it, saying, well, I, I put on a pressure, which it's funny because I've changed the, con- the, the country and the continent uh, that I've worked on a few times now. And everyone has these techniques and they're all so sure that that's the right technique. So a direct rain in America isn't the same as a direct rain in England or over here. Over here, they point their thumb out to the side and it's it's but they, you know, that's how you do it it has to be done this way and i know they get obsessed with techniques and said that the if you want a horse to work long and low this is the technique you use said, well, so you can basically do anything you know you can kick him in the belly and get him to lower his head you can do doesn't really the button itself is not the most important you know how do you back up a horse however you want yeah you know as long as it's exclusive as long as it makes sense to the horse as long as it can separate it from any other buttons The technique itself is not—they're not washing machines, you know. They're not—they don't don't have buttons on them. Exactly. And I was, as I was talking to these professionals, I was getting the impression that you people think they've got buttons on them, and if you press the right button, you get the right response. And that uh, I really liked a a study that was done with some Dutch horses, with these KWPN uh, Dutch horses, where they had fifty odd horses, which you could get on. They weren't started enough to do anything with, but you could get on and. So they got some young kids together and uh, got on these horses and then put on the aids to go forward. So, you know, bring your seat forward, squeeze with the legs and see what the horse does. And about 30 out of the 50 horses just looked back at the rider's legs. A couple of them got frightened. I think six went backwards and six went forwards. So... It basically meant that you've got about twelve percent chance. If you push on the right button, you've got about twelve percent chance of getting the right response, assuming that the horse doesn't know the right response. It doesn't. It doesn't get born. You know, like you buy a, a four-wheel drive. It's got GPS in it, and it knows where to, it, it can tell you where to go and all that. But they don't. Horses don't turn up with equitation built in. It's not built in. So I was figuring out at this time early when I came over here to France, I see you you think that these horses know equitation, they just don't. So you need to find a way of explaining it better. So I guess I would have been hoping to get some sort of operant conditioning, probably through negative reinforcement. I put pressure on the horse knows what it can do to remove that pressure. And I think that's something, you know, with all horses in anything you do, if you put pressure on a horse, it has to have a solution. You just can't have pressure without solutions. And what I see a lot of horses running into trouble with over here, it's not the big problem, but it's one of the big problems is there's a lot of pressure that horses can't remove. They don't know what they can do with it, (laughs) whether that be mouth pressure, whether it be leg pressure, whether it be how they use a whip, you know, sometimes they're they're, they're using it. The horse kicks up in the air and it stops and they say, Oh, look at that. Every time I use the, the dressage whip on him, he kicks up in the air. And I thought, well, you trained him to do it. You've done it brilliantly. And, so many of these bad behaviors are learned behaviors,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but the people don't realize is that they're, they're, they're teaching the horse things that they don't need to teach the horse to do. And I remember a, an old man in America who we was watching a demonstration, and he looked at me and he said, "Ah, seems to me the horse spends a lot of time learning things he just don't need to know."
0: I, what a good American I mean, accent!
1: <laughs> I thought, "Gee, Ronnie, you're onto something there," but yeah, it just. I think about it. I hear it often in my head. I think, yeah, it seems to me the horse spends a lot of time learning things. He just doesn't need to know. Yeah. And people aren't aware of it. So I back is back to that, that that question, I think that I was hoping that people might say, well, I put, you know, mouth pressure on the horse. Let's assume I'm riding the horse in in a simple snapple. I put the pressure on the horse's mouth and the horse knows what response will remove that pressure. And as I, I said, you know at the time to them I said, okay, so let's just say if I put this out there, the horse learns to stop by the removal of two reins, and the horse learns to go forward by the removal of two legs. And I probably a little bit less now, 20 years later, but 20 years ago when I said that, they just looked at me like, you're one loopy poor bugger. You know, you haven't figured this out at all. You haven't understood anything. I said, no, horses learn to stop by the removal of bilateral rain pressure. And they they just didn't now they have something over here they call agir, resiste, so act, resist, and yield. But the whole yield principle wasn't, you know, when he's done well, give him a rest. But that's not yielding. It's not when he's done well, give him a rest. It's The timing is so precise. Absolutely. And I don't think it was in the culture, which is surprising because, you know, when I sort of looked at books and things and read about Saumur and all these wonderful equestrian institutions, I thought, wow, That'll be amazing. I'd love to get over there. And when the chance came up, it was one of the motivating factors was, I'll get over there to France. That's the, that's the you know, the, the berceau, that's, that's the, the cradle of all where good horsemanship is, and you'll be in the great equestrian institutions and it's, you know, the Gueriniere and La Hotte and Nuno Oliveira and all these guys that have gone through France. This will be where it's at. And when I got here, I thought, wow, their horsemanship's not so good.
0: <laughs> mm, interesting. And I I really like what you said about um, horses don't have buttons, right? I was at an indoor and just warming up my horse and I was doing a bit of Spanish walk and one of the other riders in the indoor, she goes, oh, what's your aid for that? And I told her what my aid was because that's what she asked, right? But then afterwards, I thought she wasn't really asking me what my aid is. She was asking me what she really wanted to know is how do you teach that? Cause it's not about sure. the aid, it's, it's about how you get there, essentially. So, yeah, I really like what you said there about horses don't have buttons. And we just touched on earlier um, about breakthroughs. And of course, the name of the podcast is Horsemanship Breakthroughs. And I'd love to know from you what has been your biggest horsemanship breakthrough to date?
1: I don't know whether it was the science. I, I think it, as I said, I didn't think it changed anything, but then it did. I, of course, you know, if I go to the big, the, the big uh, sort of smack in the in the face that I got was back in the '80s when I saw that demonstration, that cold start demonstration of of, uh, of Pirelli's. And uh, maybe if I saw it today, it wouldn't blow my socks off like it did back then. But in 1989, when I saw that and heard how he explained it, I thought, "Wow, that's I'm missing out on something." So that was the big one, and then. Putting the science to that was, um, it explained it, it gave me a little bit more clarity because there were some of the things about the whole hierarchy issue and make the wrong thing difficult and the right thing easy, but what's wrong? And then I suppose when science came along and said, oh, well, the horses don't really know wrong from right and good from bad, I was like, oh, well, that's interesting. So they're not actually wrong, they're just. And Ray Hunt used to say that. He used to say, no, the horse isn't doing it to be wrong. And I thought, okay, he's not doing it to be wrong, but it's still frustrating or frustrating, he used to say. So I, I think understanding that horses have great cognitive capacities and incapacities, and understanding what those incapacities are, they don't know, have moral capacities. They don't know right from wrong. They don't know good from bad. They're just trying to find a way of improving their situation. And that was. A big help to me because I I think it stops you taking things personally and a lot of that you can get the flusteration out of the out of the human I think it makes it a lot easier for the human to get the flusteration out of the horse and I I use the word flusteration on purpose because (laughs) Ray Ray Hunt used to say that I participated in quite a few clinics with him he used to talk about the horses getting somewhere between frustrated and flustered and they get flusterated so I, I think understanding what was going on helped me get less flustered, and therefore the horses get less flustered. so i would say the horsemanship was a big breakthrough the science was a big breakthrough and then putting the two together you know i think it's a it's a a wonderful marriage it's just understanding what's going on because i really like the horsemanship techniques of getting their feet under control on the ground teaching them the basic responses getting those responses really good and then taking it all up onto the horse's back i really like that but understanding what was actually going on scientifically in the horse's mind was a big breakthrough for me and it as i said it changed what i did even though i didn't realize it
0: yeah cool and um i know that the the science crowd and the horsemanship crowd don't always agree on everything when it comes to horses what do you think are the main conflicts between those two kind of fields and um what are your views on those conflicts
1: yeah it's it's a real pain in the bum that because i've i participated uh, some years ago now i was at surmuir big equestrian institution over here and the annual conference of eses the international society for equitation science was was there and i'd been talking working with andrew a fair bit and he said oh, bring a couple of horses along and do a demonstration. So I did, and I explained in scientific terms how the horse was was learning things, and it was a really good success. But um, some of the comments were, yeah, you can tell he's into natural horsemanship like it was a bad thing. And also I noticed that the scientists, they weren't really big on the whole, oh, yeah, he's one of those horse whisperers. And I thought, well, hang on, you people are going to have to get an open mind. The scientific people need to come towards the people that work on the ground, on the, on the ground, towards the people that are the practical workers, those of us that are actually training horses and we need to go towards you. But for some reason, the scientific people are saying, oh yeah, these dumb horse people, they don't understand the science. So they're pushing them away. And I, I was talking to a farrier last night and, uh, as we were walking, talk, talking together, he said, yeah, I'm going to do this um, this course on podology. I don't know how you say that, on barefoot and all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, that's interesting. He said, yeah, I've wanted to do it for a while, but it's really hard because every time I go towards them, they say, oh, you're a farrier, you're horrible, you put shoes on horse's feet, you're a nasty, nasty person. So then you don't want to go and do their course. You say, well, bugger you, I'm not going to go and study with you if you're going to just treat me like I'm a horrible thing. And sometimes with the scientific world, it was a bit the same. Said, oh, yeah, we've got to get science in there and get these silly horse whisperers out of there and they're all bad and they don't understand anything. And I, at the same time, you know, I'm watching people starting cults and there's a, there's a really nice generation, I think, coming through now sort of as I Facebook along and I watch some of the young fellas starting cults and, and some of the, the really nice stuff that I'm seeing all over the world. Thinking that's really coming along nicely. Now, the scientific people can't criticize that because it's good, it's nice, they're getting the job done really well, but maybe they don't have the scientific aspect. So if the two people need to have an open enough that the scientific people need to have an open mind and go towards the people that are working in the dirt and the people that are doing the stuff probably need to go towards the science, but for some reason they're pushing each other apart and I didn't even go to the last big scientific meeting because I thought it'll just be a bunch of intellectuals talking about what we all should be doing while the scientific And I've, I've had scientific people come here and say, OK, well, I've got one here that they've sent me because they can't clip it. It's a very good dressage horse, but just they cannot uh, get the clippers anywhere near it, uh, which is making the whole competition circuit a little bit tricky. Would you like to do it? And they say, oh, no, 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 no. You, you go in the round pen, you do it. I said, well, if you know what you're doing, do it. Show me. You show me. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm not going in there. That wasn't kill you. I said, well, I know that. But, you know, if if you're going to know what's happening. So the theory and the practical, it's always, and I forget the phrase now, but, you know, the theory without the practical is just sterile and the practical without the theory is kind of blind. Yeah. So somewhere we've got to get the practical and the theory together and I think the scientific lot they're mostly theoricians that they're, they're into the theory of it but it's pretty sterile because it's not being taken into the into the round pen and a lot of us that are working in the round pen we're not getting interested in the in, in the science because you know we we can't we can't see the use of it because no one's showing us so somewhere the the theory and the practical need to come together and I know people like Andrew and some others have done that but I still think there's a long way to go I think there's some really good practical stuff in that horsemanship world I think some very very interesting stuff in the science world but if the two of them could have an open enough mind and not throw knives at each other because it's just stupid that we, yeah. we, I, I, I know I need the science and I know that the science certainly needs the practical stuff because you know I've seen scientific people work with horses it's I'm sure there's good ones but i haven't seen much of it so you know the two need to get together and and be able to discuss it and i suppose that's where i've got lucky with andrew is that i can i can talk to him he knows my path he probably doesn't do the same things but we're able to talk about it and and discuss it and say well and there's a lot of scientific stuff you know i don't understand so i call him and say can you explain to me I know you talk about habituation. I know you talk about desensitization, but I'm not sure what what's the difference between the two. And he'll say, okay, well, you know, desensitization, there's a heap of different techniques. Habituation is the product of those techniques. And he'll explain it to me. And I said, well, that helps because I didn't know. I, I, I know that I thought, didn't you know, the, the same thing or what. So I think we need to be able to talk. I guess I've been lucky like that because I've been able to have that time with Andrew and talk to him and 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 we can have an interesting discussion. But for some reason the scientific theory people seem to push the natural horsemanship people away and the natural horsemanship people thought yeah it's nice to put words on it but you can't you don't know what you're doing.
0: Yeah I suppose you're doing (laughs) your part in kind of bringing those two worlds together. I mean what I personally like about the science is I can watch uh, really any horseman at work and go oh well that's negative reinforcement oh now they're doing approach conditioning oh now they're doing stimulus blending like you know you can actually kind of pick up on what the common threads are in terms of across methods or across different trainers instead of going oh there's this brand new fancy you know method or technique it's like actually you know this can all be explained by these scientific principles um so it's good it's cool to kind of be able to identify those as you're watching them in real life
1: sure And, and and maybe put different words on things and now i'm getting the horse now i'm controlling the horse's feet and i'm becoming the leader and now you just you know you're getting stimulus control over what he's doing with his feet but
2: Mm
1: -hmm. you probably that doesn't make you terribly important i think especially with some like men one of the things about we can get off track with that whole respect issue Mm -hmm. and think when things aren't going right the horse is getting disrespectful so he is doing it to be wrong i remember working uh with with a fellow once um There was a few of us, a really good friend of mine from Australia and and we were working these horses. We had been for quite a while together, working together and we had a good thing going. And this guy from South Africa said, oh, can I come in and work a a young one with you? And we said, yeah, yeah. So he comes in, he works this horse and he gets a bit of a sweat up and starts to get a little bit flustered And then he says, I need to give this horse some respect. And he just starts getting cranky with it. And I thought, no, you're not giving it respect. You're just giving it a really bad time. And when you get on, it's going to throw you and you're going to wonder why. But his whole notion of respect is I have to dominate. You have to be dominated. And I thought, well, whatever you're on that, mate, it's not going to work out. He'd always be bigger. He'll always be stronger and he'll always be faster. So you better figure that out before you get hurt. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that, you know, having this, the science in there to say, no, no, that's not what, that's is not what's happening. Uh, that I know it helps me to say, okay, what is really happening and what isn't really happening. The horse is not being disrespectful. He's not, you know, poking fun at you. He's not showing you his social security card and any of that. None of that is happening. Uh, and I think while you're interpreting things wrong, you're probably going to react to them in the wrong way. So interpreting things, and that's the great thing I think about the science is that it helps us interpret what's actually happening. And I know it helped me a lot a lot of people I talk about it and they say, yeah, yeah, but I've never seen any of these scientific guys. They can't actually do anything. And I, well, that might be true for, I'm sure there are really good ones out there with horses, but I think if we can have an open enough mindset, knowing what's actually going on, interpreting the situation correctly can mean that you react to the situation correctly, and then you won't get yourself into trouble.
0: Yeah, for sure. On a completely different note, could you tell us what has been your happiest horse memory?
1: Yeah, I, I had a glance at the questions and I probably, I, did, I, I thought about it before. I thought, should I actually get prepared or should I just run these? And I think you know, often at the, at the, last night I watched a thing about Paul Hogan and I, I miss Australia quite often. And I was watching a thing about Paul Hogan last night and he said, oh, no, I never. Followed a script or anything i was always much better if i didn't and i thought oh, well i might be like hogs so i might be just better <laughs> i like it <laughs> i saw the question go part go by and thought wow happy you know best horse memories and and, and things like that but or, or I, I suppose there was a moment at a big horse show here in paris uh and it was called uh, la nuit du cheval the night of the horse and there was a I think there was around 5,000 people or something and all sitting around the, the outside. And I had, I have this half zebra, half horse. And she was pretty young back then. I think it was about 2001, 2002. She was born in 97. So she was probably only about four. And I just wasn't sure when we went out there, we came through the curtain and we went out there and we were in a sort of a spotlight. And my goal was to do some stuff on the ground, jump on her back, ride around with a hackamore on and then take it off and ride around bridlers and I thought I hope this all works out and it just it really really went well and what was nice about it was that I felt while I was out there it was kind of in the dark and we were in a big spotlight we couldn't even really see the people up in the grandstands and I could tell she was worried a little bit scared and she really stuck to me like she stuck to me better than she does at home Wow. So I thought, wow, in, in this situation, you're sort of looking to me saying, look, I'm a bit bothered out here, stick with me. And I'm thinking, yeah, me too. <laughs> and, and when we got through that demonstration and went out the other side of the curtain, I thought, wow. And I'm remembering that one because some time later I was looking at this, and uh, I think they call it NLP. Mm-hmm. And they're talking about, okay, you've got to be able to reproduce emotions. So think of a time... When you were just on top of the world, you know, when you were when you just had the goosebumps and you were like, wow, this is great. Mm-hmm. And I went to that moment there and and that was the one I used as, okay, when I'm looking for a great emotion, that's that's what I felt. At that moment when I shot out the other side of that curtain and everyone was clapping and I just looked around brideless on a half zebra, I thought, whoa, that was I never would have imagined, you know, here I am in Paris galloping around in front of, there's been other moments. I did the closing ceremony of the World Equestrian Games in Normandy, uh, Equitana, done some pretty big shows. And when it all goes well, it all comes together, all that preparation. And it's funny because there's just so much work and it, it all happens in, in, I think that demonstration there in uh, in Paris was seven minutes and 40 seconds. And I mean, they're really, really strict. It's not seven minutes and 45 seconds. It's seven minutes and 40 seconds. So it was seven minutes and 40 seconds. And you think, wow, that was, you know, that was an amazing seven minutes and 40 seconds. It only took 20 years to get there. <laughs> um, so um, I think when it all comes together and all that work and all that frustration and all that, questioning of things am I right am I wrong am I getting this right where am I going wrong oh
0: it's and good that, that I'm that not
1: the only that one that thinks that, that. like that Andy <laughs> Yeah, no, it's, a, it, it's, a, it's a bit of a torturous subject like someone was saying oh yeah and I just think about it and it turns around in my head and it tortures me and I said oh it won't that won't go away that won't. <laughs> sorry that's not going to get any better you know the sleepless nights where you've trying to figure out a horse and saying, I really, really want to help you, but I just don't know what track I've got to take. And i probably have to adjust about five times. And someone said, what are you going to do? And I said, I don't know. The horse will probably figure that out for me. Mm-hmm. But yeah, lots of, you know, and, and also discussing it with good horse people. It's nice to have good horse people around when you can. I was a lot, I felt very alone over here in the beginning because I thought I'd love to be able to talk to someone about it. And I'd have to ring someone in Australia or America to have a talk and say, look, I've got this horse. When you go in the box, he just lays his ears back and it flies across. How am I going to, is there anything I can do to not get killed and help this horse? But you'd have to, I'd have to find someone that would know because there was, there just wasn't that good horsemanship here to be able to get helped out. And, uh, and now when I'm working with horses, I can talk to people and say, uh, what would you have done? or and it's film sometimes i watch these films of myself because i'm doing so much stuff online now so i watch what i'm doing and i judge myself
2: yeah
1: <laughs> so, oh, that was a of shitty timing right there oh <laughs> god miss that of course you sent a big fat text message and you didn't even read it you idiot <laughs> uh, but but i think that's also it, it has to be there if you can't in, in french it's called a remise en question it's just just asking yourself the, the right questions and saying, am I wrong? But if you can't do that, if you can't question yourself and say, look, I might not be right, I don't think you can do this journey. You've got to be always asking the, the questions. You know, Could I have done this another way? Would I have been better to have put on more pressure? Would I have been better to put on less pressure? Would Maybe I could have done that with positive reinforcement. Maybe I lost my balance there with positive and the negative. Maybe I got too much pressure and not enough. You know, maybe I, I I I lost the balance between the uncomfortable and the comfortable. I might I made the right thing the wrong thing difficult, but did I make the right thing easy enough? Did the horse actually win in what I was asking it to do? Did the horse? Did I give the horse a clear frame of this isn't going to work for you? This is, and did the this is did it profit the horse enough? And, and it goes back a long way. Morris Wright said, "Look, horses are easy. They just say to themselves." This will profit me and this will profit me not, or might have been. It wasn't even, um, yeah, Morris Wright talked about that. It was an, it was another instructor. I, he wrote a book called Horse Control on the Bit, Tom Cole. Or no, I can't remember his name. Anyway, and that this will profit me and this will profit me not. And I thought, well, that, yeah, that really simplifies it. If I do this, I profit. If I do this, I don't profit. And if the horse can win in everything he's doing, I think that you know, going back to breakthroughs, it was figuring out trying to help the horse win how can i make the horse a winner how can i set up the situation so that the horse wins in doing this and if the horse can win then i won't lose but if the horse can't win i'll surely lose
0: yeah yeah and you you sort of started talking about positive and negative reinforcement there can you tell us what your preference is what you like to use and why both yep
1: uh, <laughs> <laughs> i at first i um I don't know when, at what point, I think over in the States, at some point people started having these cookies.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they call them cookies in the States, don't they?
1: <laughs> Winnie's cookies or something they were called. And so I started putting cookies in my pocket and thinking, well, when the horse does a good thing, I'll give him a cookie. But I had really no idea what I was doing, but I didn't know. I didn't know. And I... uh I was using them for different things, and the horses were getting a little bit pushy on me, and say, you know, you, you're a you're a cookie distributor. Give me a cookie. Mm-hmm. But I thought basically, I watched a few demonstrations, clicker demonstrations, and things like that, and it just wasn't. And I, you know, I as I was a cowboy, I used to do bronc riding and all those sort of things back in a wild past in another lifetime. So I was looking at the clicker stuff and thinking yeah yeah no that's that's not it at all it's not floating my boat and then i suppose it goes back to what i talked to with the scientific community then when i started putting out videos and things over here they started atta- the the pure positive as they call them or pure purely positive or something they started attacking me and saying, oh negative reinforcement he's horrible and i thought what are you lot going on about so i looked at it but they were being such a such 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 purists about the whole thing, and you know, no, no, you don't do it like that. You get the horse in the trailer, you click in your carrot, and the horse goes in the trailer. And I was thinking, well, hang on, at some point I'm going to tie the horse in there. If I've only clicked and carroted, what what happens when he starts to panic? I better teach him to move forward off the butt bar and teach him to move forward off halter pressure and teach him not to be scared when the when the divider touches him in the ribs and. Mm-hmm and I was doing other jobs, like helping race horses get into barriers and things like that, I thought I'm going to stand out there with a clicker and a carrot. And so they were attacking me and said so all that was doing was causing me to say, no, I'm no, not going there. Mm-hmm. But at some point, I don't know exactly why. I thought, look, if I'm going to study the science, I have to understand both sides of this. I can't only understand the pressure and release side of it. I have to understand the negative reinforcement. I have to understand the positive. And I, Posed during the science that's why i didn't even know that before i started studying the science that you know negative was removal and positive was adding things i didn't know any of that so i started understanding that and i thought well i better study the subject because i only know about the negative side of things i don't know the positives i better i better learn about it and i finally found a, a clicker trainer who had worked a bit with dolphins and was able to have an open enough mind to say yes, I'll help you instead of criticising you. <laughs> and um, I said, you know what? We'll we'll put out a module there online. You teach me. And so she said, okay. Well, I'll come out to your place for a week, and I'll give you lessons and teach you how to use the clicker. And we had a few subjects, like a you know a horse that was difficult to clip, and a horse that was difficult with this, and a horse that didn't want to go into this area or whatever. And I could see that there was interesting things in there and i had a horse couldn't put a bridle on it go over its ears and it was really delicate like really like when i was in the in, in a stable with it and trying to touch it around the ears and things i thought well oh, this could get pretty dangerous and so i said okay well you stand outside because it's pretty dangerous in here but you tell me how to do it and i suppose it's hard to get the timing right when someone's talking and say, oh i missed it and now you oh, missed it again and i thought wow this is heap of this is really precise. This is, um, I thought it was just about, you know, when you do a good thing, I'll give you a carrot, but the timing and the precision and the, and the, you know, teaching the horse not to come and ask for it and teaching the horse to stand, be a statue, get your carrot and the speed. I thought, wow, that, that, did you see that? That horse learned that really fast and she wasn't even surprised. I said, look at that. Excuse me. I said, in, in, just a, a few minutes this horse has learned to stand straight and even look off to the other side a little bit in order to have his carrot Mm -hmm. and 10 minutes before he's hunting around in my pockets I thought well that was rather fast wasn't it but the the precision and the time I just didn't realize it was all of that and and as soon as I figured that out I thought hang on or we're on to something here but I remain convinced that there's both that the horses have to especially if you're going to ride the horse. Horses have to know what to do with the pressure of two hands. Horses have to know what to do with the pressure of two legs. Horses have to know what to do with halter pressure or if you're going to tie them up and stuff. Mm-hmm. And the horses also should know, even when you're using a dressage whip or something, they should know what they can do in order to stop it. Mm-hmm. But they should also know what that what things can cause them to, to get these great bonus carrots and things like that. Yeah. And so some things really improved. Like I was, I really get a kick out of working horses at liberty. But I, was, as far as drawing the horses to me at a big distance and stuff like that, I mean that that positive reinforcement, that just added 20 kilometers an hour to my horse's feet. They just <laughs> and I'll give you a little signal and I'll come and get my carrot. And so I thought, wow, that's there's some really, really good stuff. And that and even some of the problem solving. The medical training really blew me away, Like what, especially watching other animals. I was watching someone with a, an otter. They had to do a, remove a tooth, and they were training the otter to roll over, open his mouth, allow access to the tooth, get a, a fish or something. And I thought there's some amazing applications for that in the horse world. So then I started watching a lady in England, Gemma Pearson. She put out some online thing about, you know, don't, don't break your vet, I think it's called. Mm-hmm. And it was really interesting. Like, okay, you've got a needling problem, you've got this problem, you've got that problem. And I thought, yeah, there's some really good applications for this. I think we need both. I think we need the positives, and we need the, we've got to have a horse, in my opinion, and I might be wrong. I think horses need to know how to move away from pressure. I think, as far as riding the horse, equitation, as far as two reins, two legs, uh, halter pressure and things it's a lot of that is based on the mastery of negative reinforcement but positive reinforcement has a big role to play in there and if we could understand it particularly with everything to do with medical training you know vets should absolutely understand those things mm-hmm. and, and we should as far as being animal trainers which is basically what we are if we're good animal trainers we need to understand both sides of that we need to understand the positive reinforcement aspect and the negative and i think to be purist and to say one is right and one is wrong that that's a real shame that's uh you're missing out on something it's a shame that negative reinforcements called negative it's like desensitization it's a shame because you're not actually removing the sensitivity Mm -hmm. you know you don't want a horse to be a cow but you are removing fear and fear has never helped anything it doesn't so I think removing the fear from the horse is really important, but you wouldn't remove the sensitivity. They've got to stay sensitive. Yeah. But you the, know, the word is, it is a negative reinforcement. I
0: was yeah. going to say the theorization doesn't have the same ring to it.
1: <laughs> yeah, sure, uh, No, we could, we could invent something. So, yeah, I think negative reinforcement, it, it's a shame because regardless of what you say, it's, it's not negative. It doesn't have an emotional connotation. I think people still get caught up in it. And something about the word negative make, makes people think, oh, negative, that's bad.
0: Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But it's and that's just a
1: the example. Often I'll, I'll often use the example of positive punishment and saying, look, if Amalia does something wrong, I'm going to give her a smack. And that's called positive punishment. But she didn't like it. Positive isn't positive. Now, you know, punishment's a whole other big subject out there. But yeah, there, there, there's positive and there is negative and Both of them don't work too well, but as far as punishment goes, but, you know, it it just the the positive and the negative is when when you understand that it's just maths, it it helps people use it a bit better, I think. But I go with both. I think both have a very important role to play, and to say one is better than the other, I think we're missing the point.
0: Yes, yeah, I definitely agree. And what do you think makes a happy horse?
1: I think happy horses, I think they understand their environment. I know in science, we talk about something called an umwelt, but I, I, I watched some studies and things on when animals lose control of their umwelt of their environment, mm-hmm. as far as experiments done with pigeons and rats and dogs and praying the dog a response. And then when it's understood it, you give him an electric shock when he responds correctly. And then he doesn't know what's right and what's wrong and what gets me a reward and what gets me a punishment, mm-hmm. what happens then? And they get all these, yeah. Neuro experimental neurosis. They get all sorts of ticks and stereotypic behaviors. And
0: mm-hmm. I'm probably
1: mixing a bit of French and English in there, but <laughs>
0: that's
1: they, a good. they get all sort of everything goes wrong. And some of them get apathy and they just lay down and won't do anything. And some of them get aggressive and, you know, people say, oh, I've got an aggressive horse. What do you do with an aggressive horse? Well, first of all, you find out why, mm-hmm. uh, and then, Because he didn't just do it. He didn't just wake up one day and said, oh, I'm cranky. Something got him there. And and I think uh, to make a happy horse, he has to be able to control his environment. I I really believe in a win-win situation, I think whenever I put pressure on a horse, the horse knows how to remove it. Whenever I move, if I'm lunging a horse and I lift the, the, the whip up a little bit, I know that my horse knows how to make that whip go back down again. So he's looking in at me, thinking, I've got control of you. I've got control of my Australian, as I say over here. <laughs> so you know, my horse, my European horse, knows how to control his Australian, and the Australian knows how to control his horse. And we both feel like we're managing each other. And I think that win-win where I put legs on, my horse knows how to remove them. I touch the reins with my hands. My horse knows how to remove that pressure or how to profit from that. If I move the whip, he knows exactly what to do so that that stops and every situation has a solution. So he feels like he's, as far as operant, if you look at operant or instrumental conditioning, and so well, the horse is instrumental in the situation or the horse is operating the human, I'm operating the horse, the horse is operating me, and we're both managing each other. And I think when the horse feels like he's managing the human and the human feels like he's managing the horse. We're on to some win-win thing where everyone's happy. I'm happy because I'm feeling like I've got my horse under control. And my horse is happy because he feels like he's got his human under control. So we're both pretty happy. And I think when horses get upset, it's because when you get into that, I can really ride the horse. I'm I can pilot the horse. They call on that over here. They're called pilots.
0: Oh, really? Uh,
1: it's the name for a, a rider. Yep. Yeah. Oh wow. It's Cavalier. But in, in show jumping, yeah, it's a pilot, it's a, it's a pilot, so, and they really are. They're just piloting uh, sort of a, a half-out-of-control horse. Yeah. But I think environmental management is that the horse can manage its situation. It's not a victim of its equitation. It's an actor in the play. It's, it's got a role and that win-win that I put pressure on you, you know how to remove it, I'm managing the horse, the horse is managing me, we're all good.
0: Yeah, love that. Yep. And if you could have dinner with any three horse people dead or alive, who would it be?
1: Yeah, I'd, I'd really like to invite a few more, but um, <laughs> I'll like, let you
0: have a few I, more.
1: Yeah, I read that one last night. I suppose when I started out, I was reading Morris Wright books about the Jeffrey Method and stuff. And that was a big revelation to me. And I'd like to have been able to talk to him a little bit more I spent a lot of time so I'd probably like Morris to be there I spent a lot of time with Ray Hunt I didn't find him a very easy human person a terrific horse person but as far as trying to help or appreciate the human wasn't really his strong point point. and from what I can gather I've seen Tom Dorrance so I just didn't get to spend any time talking or, or discussing anything with him I'd like to talk a little bit more about that because i know he touched on things but he wouldn't go there and it's a long time ago now but he said look there's there's the mental there's the emotional there's the physical and there might even be a spiritual aspect in there and i remember thinking at the time well what's that about because you're a pretty down-to-earth cowboy you're not he's he's not woo-woo so Mm -hmm. what what is that what's that about what happens because something does you walk in I, i had it happen here some a while back i was giving a big demonstration and some of my good students were out there working horses and someone ran into trouble and I went over and I got the horse and I said, instead of trying to keep working on the situation, let's remove the horse from the situation, put into place all the little pieces that'll help and then we'll go back to it. And I took the horse for a couple of minutes and fixed a few little things up and went back and it just worked straight up. And I thought, wow, I didn't think, and everyone's, you know, wow, look at that. That was incredible. But I was, I was like, shit, I didn't think that was going to work. That worked. (laughs) And it just did And I thought, what happened then? What just happened? And I remember there was a clinic. I can't remember where in Colorado, and, and Tom was doing the clinic. And he he got a bit. He was sitting there, and he got a bit flustered with a, a fellow working with a flag, and the horse was all bothered. And the guy said, "Oh, look at this horse as being a bit stupid." And Tom basically said, "Yeah, they're stupid, but it's not the horse," uh, <laughs> in, in in a half diplomatic way. Yeah. And eventually. Wobbled down there, he's pretty in his nineties and, and grabbed the flag and grabbed the horse and moved the flag around the horse. And I said, okay, I don't believe in magic. So what just happened then? And I'd like to, I'd like to know what that is. What, what that, what's that thing that, that happens sometimes where you think, okay, I can't explain that even with all the science. So I'd like to have had more time to talk to Tom and maybe see if he could elaborate a little bit on that. I have had the chance. I suppose I've been lucky. I've had a lot of had the chance to sit down and had dinner with at a table with Buck Branderman and and talk about things without getting terribly philosophical about the whole thing. So I've been a bit lucky.
0: Oh wow, that would have been awesome.
1: Um, Well, it was at one of those benefit concerts, and it's just they they draw people out of a hat and put them on tables together. And next thing, I end up sitting at a table with Buck. I, I did turn up one night at about three or four in the morning with a truck running late to a thing in Fort Worth and and rolled in there and started unloading the truck and there was Buck. so I had, had a chat with him and, and it was I suppose when so I thought I had things figured out and then science turned up and I thought wow I didn't know I had so much to learn I'm sure there's a lot more of that and I I'd like to talk to Tom I'd like to talk to Morris as I said to, to Holly last night I suppose I'd, I'd invite dad to the table because he he was a he went through a thing where my, my father was into horses all his life and I ran into this when I was 20 and I took it to him when he was in his 60s and I said, look, I'm onto this thing and that." And I know it was really hard for him because at some point he said, shit, I've been around horses all my life. I'm in my 60s and I've just missed out on these huge things. And I was pretty proud of him because I thought, wow, if you can even admit that, if you can even say, after all I've done I've there's a huge part that I've missed out on and I still want it and uh you know and then we started working horses together mm-hmm. and it was funny we we started I started a bunch of of young horses and I remember him saying wow they're much better this year they're the horses the, the whole breeding program's going great because these horses are so much better do you remember five or six years ago just how much sweat and how tricky it was and You know, you're wearing your rodeo vest and your helmet and it was all a bit wild and woolly. It's much better now. And I said, yeah, the horses haven't changed, Dad. It's the same, (laughs) same bloody bloodline. Nothing's changed. The only thing that's changed is me. I've gone away to America. I've spent a shitload of money trying to understand this thing and that's the only thing that's changed. Everything else is the same. And he said, yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right, you're right. I know you're right. And I could see it was like, but yeah how'd that happen and uh and i could it, it felt good and bad at the same time it felt good that oh he's finally accepting that i'm onto something but it felt bad because it was like oh, all my life i've been missing out on it and um and i suppose yeah you'd like to sit down now and say uh i don't have him anymore but I, i'd like to sit down now and say look you, you know i hope you're comfortable with it because I know when you run, I, and it might happen to me, I don't think I've got this all figured. I don't think. I'm bloody sure that I don't have this thing figured out. The more I know about it, the more I figure out that I haven't got it figured out. Yeah. So there, there could be a big thing out there. I hope there isn't. I hope I'm not missing out on a big thing. But, There's always yeah, no, way. Like, I'd like to have a chat with him. I'd like to Tom and Dad and Morris Wright to sit around together and and have a chat. I think that would be good. And
0: and you've got to I tell said, us if Mark told you. Ones. Oh, sorry,
1: you go. <laughs> I said that some of those French ones, I'd like to have a chat to them, I suppose, the Guérinier and some of them. But I just think it was so technical. You know, it was so oh, the épaule en dedans, the, the shoulder in. That's the thing. If you can get the shoulder in, that changes everything. And it just, and I think, oh, no, it's, it's a good exercise. And it has a lot of things, it has a lot of overshadowing aspects to it. I know when the horse is doing a shoulder in. you're masking, you're overshadowing a lot of stuff because he's trying to manage his feet, he's trying to manage the bend in his body, he's trying to respond to a lot of different things all at the same time. Mm -hmm. So yes, the flags and the spectators and things, they lose a little control over the horse because he's occupied by other things. And scientifically, I can look at that now and say, yeah, it's not the exercise, it's what's happening because of that exercise, but you'd like to be able to talk about it nowadays and say, okay, now that we have science, now that we know what's actually happening, to some of those generations you know the people that were around i don't know about xenophon but you know go back a long time a a long way and talk to the guerriniere and talk to la Hotte and talk to the big generals Mm -hmm. uh out of the french military situation and say okay now that we know this what does it change that that would be in conversation
0: yeah absolutely yeah it's almost like it would be great if you could speak to all of those people but also kind of give them the the science knowledge so you could talk on the kind of like the same terms in a way?
1: It would be because they didn't have it. And I guess one of the things that I've really figured out in this whole force world, it's a pretty complicated world, and one of the things that happens, and it's human, is that when there's no science to explain what is happening, then belief systems fill in the empty spaces and people will always react more to what they believe in rather than what they know. So like people die for, for beliefs, but they don't, there there wasn't the Darwinian war. No one sort of started a big war because Charles Darwin said, Oh, this is what actually happened. You know, there was, there probably wasn't a guy called Adam who ate an apple. It probably didn't happen. It probably happened a little bit more like this. You know, no one went crazy about all of that and said, uh, you know, let's have the Darwin war. But as far as religion and beliefs and things go, people will die for that shit. And I think when science wasn't there, you have to fill in the empty spaces with something, and that's where beliefs come in. And I read a thing a while back. Someone said, oh, when you follow your heart, don't forget your brain. And I think that's really important because it is a passion, equitation, horses, it's a passion. We don't get into it for a logical reason because God knows. It's not very logical when
0: you
1: think about it. I think Buck said that one day, he said, look, think about it. We are actually strapping the skin of a dead animal onto the back of a herbivore and then climbing onto it. It's all pretty wild. So, and, you know, it's expensive, it's dangerous. It's it's not a logical thing to do, but it is passionate. It it is a huge passion. And I I, I guess because it is that means a lot of people follow their heart and not necessarily their brain. And then they get belief systems, and then they start thinking this is what happens, but it's not actually what's happening. And we probably need a little bit of both. We probably need to have our brains and our hearts in order to get this thing yeah. right.
0: Yeah, it's an art and a science. Hey,
1: I would reckon that's a pretty good way of explaining it. And yeah, and if it is a, a, an art form, it it shouldn't you know go without the science. I think art yeah. and even teaching is a science. And and as far as I, I I think whether you're teaching humans or horses. There is a science to it and, and it needs that part.
0: Yes. And now I've got a bit of a fun question for you. Well, hopefully fun. Hopefully you've got a good answer for us. What has been your best horse-related purchase in the last 12 months?
1: Yeah, I try not to spend too much on them. I would say that there was a, a thing happened over here. Yeah, I think it was a president of France and he said something that got caused a big kerfuffle and it was something about if you get to 50 and you don't have a rolex watch you've you've missed out on your life or something like that <laughs> and, and everyone's oh well you get to 50 and you don't have a rolex and i thought well i don't want a rolex i break my watches regularly but i'll buy myself when i get to 50 i'll buy myself a nice horse and so i did that it's a little over 12 months ago now but i um I'd been working a lot in sport horses and all my videos and things I was doing with these, what they call Cels Francais, with these big French sport horses because I thought, well, if I do the videos with a, with a Portuguese horse or the Spanish horse, people say, yeah, yeah, but that's, they're, they're good at that. It's not the same thing. And if I do it with a, a quarter horse, I'll say, yeah, but they're too easy. So I did everything with these French sport horses, but I wasn't doing it for me. I was doing it for the videos, I was doing it for the French public, I was doing it for a lot of other reasons but I wasn't doing it for me and then when I got to the other side of 50 it was a little bit surprising when I think about you know some of the things I did up in the northern territory and the stupid rodeos and the dumb crazy things I've done. I thought well I didn't think I was going to live to be this old. I thought well I'll buy myself my, my Rolex watch but it won't be a Rolex watch I'll buy myself a nice quarter horse and I found a nice quarter horse that and uh, started off in Italy. Uh, and I thought, yeah, I'll, I'll go and have a look at this horse. And I took him into a round pen. I thought, well, I'll look at him on the ground because, you know, the ridden stuff, he knows a little bit of that. But so I took him on the ground and he just got all playful. And I thought, this is cool. And I think I only looked at the horse for about half an hour and said, yeah, I'll buy him. And the person's like, wow, that was okay.
0: That was easy. <laughs> um,
1: yeah, I didn't even negotiate or anything. I said, oh, if you can get him to me, I'll buy him. And I, I really have had a lot of pleasure out of that because he is playful. And I, I think every next horse I get, I, I'm getting a little bit better at this. I'm, I'm, my body's not as good as it used to be. I don't want to start another Zorse. But I, um, I think I'm getting a little bit better at reading the situation and, and being able to have the horse find some pleasure in it. And that horse there has been a real pleasure because he's, he actually gets a great kick out of what we're doing. He likes it. And I think I've been looking for that for a little while. I've been missing it a bit. I watch cutting horses and think, wow, that horse just turned into a border collie. And I used to love dog training because dogs just seem to love working dog training because they just seem to love it. And they get they shake, they just love it. You know, you're standing there waiting for the to cast the dog out. Uh, I did these sheepdog trials when I was younger, and I just loved it. My mother really wanted me to do sheepdog trials because. It was way less dangerous than riding Bronx in rodeos. But just seeing the pleasure in the dog, and I thought, I'm just missing that with horses. And then lately I I got this horse about a year ago, and he just enjoys things. And I think, wow, that feels good to have the... Sorry sorry, to interrupt. Do you
0: think that he enjoys it because that's the sort of horse he is, or do you think it's to do with your training, or do you think it's both? And what's your secret uh, to kind of helping him enjoy it?
1: I, I think it's both. I think he loves understanding, and I think to go back to what I mentioned before, I think he loves being able to manage the situation. Yeah. I know if I do this, I got you. I got you again. I got you again. Yeah. Uh, and if I can just catch up to you here, you'll stop, and I'll get a bonbon. I'll get a little biscuit. I'll get a cookie. Yeah. I get a <laughs> carrot, and then he gets a whole kick out of the thing, and and uh, it it. it excites him in a nice way because I know some, especially some stallions and things, I sort of touched on the subject of carrots and and they got excited, but not necessarily in a good way. Yeah. Um, He keeps it all together, but he gets a kick out of it. And I don't know if in his past, like when he was started in Italy and stuff, if he really had control of his environment or he was just a victim of it and said, now I'm going to make you spin, now I'm going to make you stop. And he didn't really have control maybe of of his human. And the fact that he has, it, it he gets a kick out of it. And you can see it's it's fun to him. See, he gets a a really funny little eye. He's got very readable little eyes. And I I think that was the, you know, as far as the last 12 months with horses, that was the, it's got, I've got a real kick out of the fact that, oh, this is nice. You know, it feels good that my horse is, enjoying this because I've often had a a kind of a quandary, a bit of a I, I I question it often. I say I I want the horses to have fun, but I have to admit that horses don't choose to do equitation. You know, there's no foals standing out there in the paddock and lifting up their little hoofs and saying, when I'm big, I'm gonna to be tortillas. So I'm gonna to be a dressage horse. I'm gonna do dresser, I'm gonna do show jumping. Uh, I, I know they're not choosing to do it. I know we're bringing them into our world and but I just think if we can get the horse to where he can manage the situation and we can have this win-win they can still have a good time and it's going to become very important and it's going to become very important soon very soon because if we can't prove show that what we're doing is ethical and horses are having a good time in this Mm -hmm. we're going to get a lot of pressure to stop it it's happening here we've got people naked people running around with sandwich boards at show jumping competitions. Oh, wow. Um, they're, they're still occupied with the bullfights and stuff, and that's okay. But I watched the whole thing with SeaWorld over here. I watched the whole debate. And, uh, and, I, and I watched it closely, not taking sides. I didn't, the, the aquatic trainers are wrong or the, no. the people that want to release the free willy, they're all wrong. I, I, didn't, ha- I didn't take sides on it. I just watched it. But a lot of the arguments that were brought up by the free willie crowd were arguments that you could bring to the horse world. They don't eat what they eat in the nature. They don't live in environments the same as nature. They live in environments that are too small. We're making them do movements they don't naturally do. You know, and they're talking about training aquatic animals, but you can bring any of those things. There was at least 10 points and you can bring any of those things into the horse world. And say, oh shit! When they finish with them, they're going to start on us. So I think it's very important that we start questioning ourselves and say, okay, how can we make this stuff work out for the horses? And show that you can do equitation. You can have a horse-human relationship where the horse gets a situation that is better than it would get in nature. And that's a. I I talk uh, once a month. I have a little chat with a with a friend on Zoom a guy called called tristan tucker and we have our little chats. and um he said yeah i I think i i I know australia i know nature i've seen the brumbies i've seen the mustangs and things um i think what i offer to my horse is better than what nature can offer and while i'm doing that i feel good about it and I, i think we can i think we can say look you know nature's pretty hard and what we're offering to our horses is something that's better you know, just little things like being able to walk out to the paddock and have the horse trot up to you and he's giving you a little nicker, and he's happy to see you you think, okay, we're, we're good here. This, this can't be wrong, but we're going to have to be able to show that because if we don't, then these, inter- these, these extremists, they're going to get dangerous.
0: Yeah. And I do think in general, people are, or more and more people are looking for more ethical ways of training their horse anyway, as this sort of knowledge becomes more mainstream and uh, more accessible via the internet. So I think in some ways it's a good thing, but you're right. In some ways, it could be a bit scary if um, eventually perhaps uh, our, our passion is kind of threatened in that we might not be able to ride.
1: Yeah, it will be. I know I said this some time ago, and people said, "Oh, no, 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 this—it's been around forever. You won't, no one's going to threaten equitation. It will. It's going to happen. I can see it happening over here." I was in a train station a while ago. There was a big painting on the wall talking about a, an exposition of, of paintings by a guy called George Stubbs, and someone had written, "Equitation equals exploitation. Exploitation. Yeah, basically, I mean, we're just using horses as not nice. What we do." And I thought, wow, this is, this is not going to calm down. This is going to get worse. And they're having these big debates nowadays over here about, you know, is it right to ride horses? Is it cruel to ride horses? So it, it's, it, it's going to turn up. And that's why I think, you know, we need to say, okay, what can we do to be able to, to show, to prove that it's not cruel what we're doing? It's actually the horse gets a pretty good deal out of it. And I I think when I work with this little horse and I see he's having fun, I think, okay, I feel this is great. This is what I want.
0: Yeah, that would be that. Yeah. That's a nice feeling, especially when they come running up to you and that little knicker, it's always nice. And what's something to kind of satisfy what you've explained there? What's something that you wish every horse owner would do differently?
1: I suppose some horse owners are going down tracks where they Probably don't need to change much, but I, I think knowledge is so important. And I, I, it comes back to that thing where I talked about having the horse win. I, I just wish everyone, when they were working with a horse, was asking themselves, Is my horse able to manage me? Rather than am I able to manage my horse, is my horse also winning? It's something I say often when I'm teaching over here is Leslie uh, Cheval let the horse win. And I remember when I was little, people dad and some of those saying to me don't let him win don't let him win yeah and now i'm out there saying let him win let him win now absolutely don't let him win when he's resisting you know if he's starting to resist your hands that's probably not the right time to let go Mm -hmm. but when he does get it right for christ's sakes let him win and if the horse can always win and i think if everyone was thinking what can i do so my horse is always winning because i know more and more sure of i know that we can go further with this i don't think we're anywhere as i study the subject and as i work with more horses i think wow someone's going to take this to somewhere else someday and i watch fellas i'm good friends with a guy over here called lorenzo Mm -hmm. who rides his horses standing on them it's pretty bloody amazing you sit there and you watch it and you think my and and it's not just riding around standing on horses he's got like 10 white ones and 10 black ones and they're all Sometimes they're black and white, and sometimes it's all the blacks and all the whites, and it's incredible. And I think, wow, this is just the beginning. People are going to take this. The more people know, the more people are going to take it to a whole other level. I, I think we're just touching on it, and, and that's going to be really uh, interesting to see just where we can where we can take it to. You know, never ever think we've got this thing worked out. But I think if all horse people could say, okay, how can my horse win? In every situation, how can my horse manage his environment? Uh, how can my horse feel like he's he's an actor? He's playing a very important role in all of this, but he's not a victim of it. Don't make the horse do it. But I always, you know, that's an old one, cause your idea to become your horse's idea. But I think the horse can feel like he's managing, like he's. I'm sure that's this cheeky little horse that I'm enjoying so much at the moment. I'm sure he feels like, oh, I have got this human at the moment. I have just I'm running him. I've got him.
2: He's Everything. training you. Want.
1: Yeah, sure. He flies into that horse trailer and he looks at me like, you can't do anything now. I'm in the horse trailer. <laughs> and I think it goes back to training mules. It was how you had to train a mule. If the mule didn't feel like he was winning, you were going to lose. You know, and I would wish anyone the experience of working with mules. I think it was one of the greatest things. It was a kind of a great present that, that Pirelli gave me. After I'd been over there a few years, he said, oh, you won't be around. You won't stay here forever, so I might just accelerate you a bit. I'm going to give you three mules. And I thought, oh, shit, this will be – I don't like mules much. They're a bit stubborn. And he said, yeah, that's that's why I'm giving them to you because you, you're you going to learn something here. And then you suddenly figure out they're not stubborn at all. If they can win, they're just terrific. But you've got to think about it differently. You can't make a mule do anything. And if the, horse, if the mule feels like he's training you, you'll be fine. And uh, and I guess it was in working with that the mules that I thought, wow, maybe we should train horses like we have to train mules. Pat used to say that a bit. And then when I got this Zorse, this half zebra, I thought, wow, people should train horses like you have to train a Zorse. Now, you really have to train a Zorse correctly. They'll, they'll kill you. It's, they're not doing it to be wrong. They're just so, they've got half zebra in them. They're scared and there's so many little things. And if they don't understand, they panic. So you have to be really, really clear and make it, and they just get relaxed. They get lovely and relaxed and calm and flattened. Everything goes beautifully as long as you can explain things clearly and as long as they feel like they can win, as long as there's always, I, 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 you know, I'm not a, no one's making me do anything. I can run this situation. I'm in control of my environment. I haven't lost control of my world. And, and uh, you know, if everyone could train a horse, if horses were like horses, I think we'd all be better horsemen. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I've I've not really, well, I haven't ever seen a horse really or worked with mules, but I've heard that they are a lot more challenging. And it's interesting, like when you're talking about helping your horse win, how would you say people can start to, I mean, it's probably like how long is a piece of string in terms of <laughs> being a really open-ended question, but how would you say people can start helping their horse win just from listening to today's podcast?
1: I would say whenever you put a pressure on a horse, even I'm not just talking just physical pressure, but even emotional pressure, working at a distance or anything, but whenever you put pressure on a horse, the horse has to have a solution. Never put a horse in a situation where he can't have a solution. So if you touch your reins, the horse should know how he can remove that pressure. Any pressure you put on the horse, the horse has to have a solution to remove that pressure. And if he feels like he can manage the pressure, uh, you'll find that you're very rapidly using very very little pressure it goes from stimulus to signals it goes from pressures to these tiny little codes. Mm-hmm. it's and I, I know you've no doubt experimented with it anyone that that is passionate about this thing has people always say oh a horse can feel a fly so you say yeah yeah that's true but how perceptive are they sometimes Yes, I'm doing demonstrations and sending out signals there to the horse, little codes, little, you know, move the shoulder across here or move that, but no one can see it. It's become totally invisible. And maybe I got a lot of flack over here about this whole horse whisperer thing. Oh, yeah, look at the horse whisperer. But I think if there is a metaphor for whispering, it's that. It's that you can, remove, you can reduce pressures, you can reduce things so subtly that the crowd can't even see what you're doing. And good dressage. You know, I was watching some of the tests at the World Championships the other day, and when it's good, you don't see much. When it's bad, you see a lot. (laughs) But when it's really good, and I've always, I I was lucky, we did a demonstration once in in England, a demonstration, a sort of a, I don't know what you'd call it, a couple of days of working with horses in front of the public uh, over in the UK with Ray Hunt, and who came across with his young horses, Carl Hester. And it was just amazing. You've got a rough, tough cowboy, Ray Hunt, mm-hmm. and you've got Carl Hester, and they're talking about the same thing differently. But they're talking about the same thing, and you think, wow, this is amazing. Uh, it, was a, it was a terrific experience. And, uh, and, and as I was listening to them and, and watching Carl work with the horses, I was thinking, yeah, he's really got that do less, get more thing working for him. I, I can't even see what he's doing. I'm going to counter down this center line and ask for a lead change I said I didn't even see what you did and he said no you're not supposed to
0: no (laughs) yeah and
1: I thought wow that's and I think that's something that all horse people should aspire to how can I make what I'm doing invisible how can I be such a good whisperer that no one can hear what I'm saying but my horse is understanding the whole conversation
0: love that so good I know we've been speaking for a little while, Andy, you've um, shared a lot of knowledge with us today. So before we wrap up, can you tell us what is your ultimate goal with horses?
1: don't know if I have a goal. Every time I get a horse, I think I love the, the working on the ground, the Liberty stuff, and I think about, okay, how can I get this rapidly to where I don't need, so I've got this no strings attached thing happening on the ground. That's become pretty quick and easy. But when I ride a horse thinking about the same thing, okay, I need to get this horse rapidly to where I don't need reins, I don't need anything, I can just ride the horse with my body. Mm-hmm. And I don't necessarily get like with sport horses and things, especially if they're competition horses, I might not get there. But the fact that it's always in my head thinking if I didn't have reins, would this still be working for me?
2: Yeah.
1: I think it, that, that it's a good question. So I always try and think, okay, how can I get it to where I don't need anything? i've just got my body and it's working i don't know how far i can take it i don't know if i have an ultimate goal you know cantering around bareback and brideless i've done that it's it's nice so i i think the ultimate goal is to just keep going down this track because what i figured out is it just there is no end to it i when i was little and i watched these fellas come over and start breaking in the horses on the family farm I kind of admired them you know the these big strong cowboy ringers and things and they'd get on and things to buck about a bit and they'd have a bit of fun and I thought wow when I grow up I want to be a horseman and people talked about it like people like Morris right I think they talked about it even going back to that <clears throat> the movie the man from Snowy River you know to, oh he's not a man he's a horseman and I thought wow when I grow up I want to be a horseman and I thought it might be some destination that you get to. One day you wake up and you say, I'm a horseman. But now I know that it's just, you're just never ever going to get there. So I guess there isn't really an ultimate goal. It's just keep on keeping on, mm-hmm. understanding you'll never really, really get this thing. You'll never figure it out. But going down the track and trying to is pretty amazing. And, and, and being able to accept those things where you say, oh shit, no, I didn't, I didn't get that part. I missed out on something there. Uh, you know, now I'm getting to a part where you know, I wish someone would give me my 30-year-old body back. <laughs> uh, but I'm, you know, and I'm still and I and I and it's good because it gives me motivation. So I started learning to surf when I was 50 because it and it motivates me. I think I I can't get this, I can't do this if I'm not still flexible and fit. I just mm-hmm. won't be able to do it. I won't. And if I let my body go, I can't do this. Uh and it's the same with my horsemanship. It just keeps me going because I think I can't I have to you know stay keep my mind under control keep my body under control I have to keep all these things going because I need these things to keep going down this track and I just want to keep going down this track yeah Uh, and I I think there is no end to it but to just um, keep on keeping on and I, I watch people that lose the passion not in horsemanship but these equitation teachers that stand in the middle of an arena and say Look forward. Keep your back straight. Heels down. Thumbs Inside, up. Like the
0: outside rain.
1: <laughs> oh my God! And and then and the fallout, the dropout rate, because you have to have a diploma over here to teach. So I know how many people go in to the, become teachers, and I know how many are still teachers. And two thirds, like it's a two-year course, a two-year diploma to become an equitation teacher over here. Be a riding instructor, you have to do this two year course. Mm -hmm. Most of them have gone, like 75, 80% of them, they're out within five years. They're not in it anymore. They're out there, they might be selling helmets or saddles, but they're out of it. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And why is there this massive dropout rate? And I think they're just not getting the passion. They're not passionate about it. And knowing that there is no end to this, there'll always be more to learn. And understanding the horsemanship and now the science, I think it's just passionate and it just. Gives you a reason. It's I talk about it. I, it's funny. You know, it's been thirty years, and it's still what I talk about. As you've already witnessed here today, I can talk about this shit for hours.
0: I know I haven't even asked you all of the questions, but I feel like it's been a while, so we should probably wrap up. <laughs> I mean, I, I can, can keep I go in? <laughs>
1: sure, and it, it it is. It's just such a passionate thing. You can yeah. just talk about it for hours. You know, we drive down the road, Holly and I, these podcasts, and just listen to this stuff for hours and hours and think wow this and then the journey just goes next thing you're there you know you get a six-hour drive and you think shit that went fast yeah um it's just such an amazing subject and I yeah. think it is because there is no end to it you don't get to get to the end of this thing yeah exactly probably frustrated at the end thinking shit I've still got more to go
0: <laughs> um who was it that said you need like three lifetimes to become a horseman or something like that <laughs>
1: no doubt about it you you need a couple of lifetimes just to learn to live a lifetime but yeah the the horse thing you can you need a few
0: yeah I love how you're kind of you're already living your ultimate goal in a way just being on that journey and just remaining like passionate and open-minded and yeah keep experimenting and learning I think that's the journey isn't it I think loving the process is, is half the battle in terms of if you want to get anywhere with horses, it's like you've really got to love that journey because there's going to be ups and downs along the way.
1: Yeah. And the downs, I think, once you accept them and you know what they are, they get a little bit easier to, to put up with because you, you know that, you know, no one's trying to be wrong and no one's, you're just doing your best with it. Because, yeah, in the beginning, you know, you're not managing with a horse and you get a little bit flusterated. Now, I think fascination's probably a little bit more than frustration. I guess when you're getting filmed and you've got people watching you and you feel like you're failing, it's pretty frustrating. But it's still when you talk about it after, it becomes a fascinating thing. And I said, what's going wrong? What am I missing? What am I not getting? Yeah. And, and you can say, rather than get frustrated about it, get fascinated about it. And it'll probably all work out. I was younger, I don't, think I, could, I don't think I could get the frustration away. It was, it was just, I'm not, it's not working. My horse isn't doing what I want him to. Mm-hmm. But now I'm a bit older and probably, bit, and horses knock the shit out of your ego. Your ego gets a fair knocking. And I think in the beginning you think, oh, yeah, you know, Tom said there's no place in it for an ego in the round pan. So you need to leave your ego outside. But if you stay in this game long enough, the horses will fix that for you. And once, once that's gone, well then you can have a clear head and say, okay, well, that's fascinating. I wonder what I can do there. And that was the, probably the thing that Storm. me. Was, I, was, I had a nice fellow called Ronnie Willis working with me, and Ronnie and said, oh, I'd be fascinated to do that. And I thought, well, that's an interesting thing to say. He said, this would be fascinating. Can I help you with it? And I said, oh, please.
0: Yeah, I like that, like saying that it's fascinating rather than frustrating. And something that's helped me along my journey is, Whenever and it's because of a pattern that I notice. Whenever I am frustrated, I go, "Okay, I'm so close to a breakthrough here. Like I'm about to level up as a horse person because you know I've been given this challenge for a reason. You know I'm about to learn something, so that helps me feel a bit more positive about the situation, and therefore I'm in a better problem solving frame of mind. Just knowing that you know I'm about to learn something, so that's exciting.
1: Sure. And then sometimes you, know, you get your head your head in the problem, and you need to just step back. Because sometimes I, I think I talk about it a lot over here when people are trying with problem solving. Everyone wants to solve their problems, but no one wants to educate the horses so as not to have them. If I do a webinar over here in the evening and I say, oh, I'm going to talk about how to solve these five problems, I can get five to 7,000 people on the bloody webinar. Wow. Because they all want to solve all these problems. But if I put on another one and I'll say, Educate your horse so as not to have problems. I'll only get a thousand. so as as Pat used to say, everyone wants to go to heaven, but no one wants to die. everyone wants to solve their problems, but you, you don't really need to have them if you just get a really good foundation on the horse and put a really good foundation in there, you might not need to have those problems and instead of looking once you look at the problem and say the problem is the horse is moving when I'm trying to get on him. okay, but Is that the problem? Now, there might be a lot of other problems. Is he scared? Have you got control of his feet? I'll guarantee you, you haven't. Yeah, sure, because otherwise you wouldn't be moving. So no, the problem isn't you can't, he's not standing still when you go to get on. The problem is he's scared. The problem is you haven't got control of his feet. The problem is he's concentrated on the outside environment. He's not concentrated on you. The problem, you know, there's probably 10 problems, but it's not the one you're working on. Yeah. But if if you can fix the other 10, and and I love now solving problems without going to the problem. So well, let's let's fix this. Oh, you can't pick up his feet. Okay, well let's let's fix this without worrying about his feet for now. And it's funny because you start working with a horse with a flag or something, and someone says, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, that yeah, he's a bit scared of that." But the problem is, you can't pick up his feet. You say, "Yeah, thanks for the information."
0: Yeah, because <laughs> they're not connecting those they're dots. Yeah. Or um, it's kind of cool when you, I don't know, you've probably done this, but you set things up right from the start. Let's just say like in a lesson situation and then the owner goes, oh, well, he's not doing it today. And it's like, yeah, because we've, we've done all these steps beforehand.
1: (laughs) Exactly. It's exactly, exactly what happens. And I'm using the example of picking up his feet because it actually happened. You know, I worked with a horse for nearly two hours and then I picked up its feet. And the lady said, oh, I don't know what's going on there. I don't don't know whether it's the change of environment or whether it's because I brought him here or because you travelled in the trailer this morning, but it's impossible to do that at home. And I thought, oh, I've just done two hours work so I can do that. (laughs) But you just didn't see it. You're not, as you said, you're not connecting the dots. You know, the horse was terrified. The horse had no control of his feet. There was a heap of things going wrong. He didn't even know how to yield a pressure or anything. And now I've explained all those things and now I can pick up his feet. And I think that's where I was missing it with, with my breaking in or cold starting as we call it is that I was just thinking I've got to get on this, uh, get this horse to where I can get on it, but I wasn't seeing all the little things that mean that you can. If you set it up, it doesn't stay a Russian roulette anymore. And that's, you know, it it really was that. I was putting my foot up in the stirrup and thinking, oh, well, don't know what else to do. Might as well get on. Uh (laughs) And so we'll see what happens when I get my ass in the saddle. You know, this could go hell west and crooked or it might all work out. I don't know. And then, you know, as you learn more about it, you think if I set it up right, I can get this to where it's going to go, okay, I'm not, it's not a mystery anymore. It's not, I don't know where I'm going. And then that, that, that really, really helped a lot. But, but I see that often. I see that often where the problem is this and the problem is that. It's not, the problem isn't the problem. The problem is there's a lack of education that means that you have problems but if you and and they start in equitation over here so fast i think it was a, a great eventing writer called david o'connor who said
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know there's the there's the understanding the comprehension of the animal foundation then there's the equitation and then there's the competition
2: mm-hmm. and
1: most people start at the third chapter of the equitation but they the comprehension the understanding of the animal the science behind it all they don't know it the foundation is pretty feeble And so when they get to the equitation part, it all gets a bit hard on the horse and the human gets frustrated, and the horse gets frustrated, and now it's not working. Whereas if we could understand the horse, if we could put on a good foundation, the party equitation, it'll go okay, everyone will be all right.
0: Yep. Somehow, Andy, we managed to go off on tangents on the last question as well. (laughs) So it's very clear that you've got so much to offer, so much knowledge and I'm guessing that our listeners will be wanting to find out where they can hear more from you. So can you tell us where our listeners can find out more about you and what you offer, your website, etc.?
1: Yes. Now, as I said, I came over here 20 years ago, and I've done everything in French. had the chance to do a little bit of work with a university in Montana, but everything basically has been in French since. So there's Andy Booth, A-N-D-Y-B-O-O-T-H dot, if that's the French website, but knowing that most of you, being that I'm doing this in English, will be English speakers, and there is an Andy Booth official, which is a Facebook and an Instagram, but that's all in French. In English, there's a page. Is it? I think it's a Facebook page. Yes, it is. That's called Horseman Science by Andy Booth. Excellent. So I think the Horseman. It, there's a YouTube channel with that. I think the Facebook page would connect you to the YouTube channel. I do have plans. I started up a horseman's club over here and it was just, as I was working with horses, I was seeing all sorts of interesting things, fascinating things. (laughs) And, and I, and I said to Holly, can you film this? This is interesting. And she was filming it and I'd explain it. And then I ended up with like 150, 200 videos like that. And I started up this horseman's club and it's been very, very popular over here. There's thousands of people into it. So I thought i probably should do that in English. Now, I don't know whether I'll use some of the videos. Some of them are pretty good. So I think I might put a voiceover on them one day, but I have to bring, I think I'll I'll bring out a sort of a, I suppose, horseman's club might might change the name of it, but I'll I'll definitely go somewhere with the whole English thing. I hadn't thought about it in the beginning. I was getting on my little horsemanship journey over here and thinking, well, it's pretty good in Australia and the States. It's, it's, It's into the culture. It's working out pretty well. But then, when I got into the science of it, I thought, "Wow, there's not a lot of us." Like I looked at some of your stuff, and I thought, "Well, that's that's good. There's not a lot lot of people doing that, bringing the science and the horsemanship together." But I think there's such a big place for it that I might do something in English where I'll keep working on horseman science and say, "Okay, horsemanship's great, I love it. If you can understand the science behind it, you'll do it even better."
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that that is definitely much needed, and I'm sure lots of people. Who are English speaking would definitely be interested in that. So, yeah, I can't wait to hear about that in the future. Thank you again for coming on to the podcast today, Andy. You've brought so much knowledge and wisdom to the conversation. And I just love how you marry the natural horsemanship and the science worlds together. So, yeah, thank you again.
1: Been a big pleasure. I hope it helps people out, leaves people scratching their heads because it's a a wonderful subject and it takes a lot of head scratching, but it's. uh, as I said, I think the great part is you just never get to the end of this thing and 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 keep that passion alive. And the more you stay fascinated, the less you'll be frustrated, and it's just uh, it's such a fascinating subject, I think. and it and it brings a lot of things to other places in life. It doesn't have to just stay in the round pen. I think anyone who's been down this track will say, "Wow, this doesn't just apply to horses. this applies to just about everything. yeah, so it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful subject. It sure beats having a job.
0: Yeah, exactly. And yeah, I I definitely agree. There's so many lessons I've learned through horsemanship that I'm like, oh, this kind of applies to another area of my life. How interesting. (laughs) So yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you again, Andy. And um, we'll speak soon.
1: Been a pleasure. Thanks a lot for that, Amalia.
0: Thanks for listening to the Horsemanship Breakthroughs podcast. Make sure you hit the follow button so you get notified every time a new episode is released. And if you've learned even just one small thing from today's show, I would really appreciate if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or screenshot this episode and share it on social media. You can connect with me on Instagram at amalia underscore horses or my website amaliadempsey.com where you can find free resources to help you on your horsemanship journey that's all for today. Thanks for being here. Remember to train with kindness and ride with excellence. And I'll see you in the next episode.